loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Martha Callahan. Dr. Callahan's a board-certified integrative and holistic medicine physician and a certified functional medicine practitioner. She studied mind-body medicine at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Washington, D.C., and she studied acupuncture at UCLA. She is currently the owner and CEO of the Five Stones Healing Arts and Wellness Center in Leesburg, Virginia, where she has a robust clinical practice and runs the not-for-profit Five Stones Institute that provides training and education in the balanced care of body, mind, and spirit. Dr. Callahan has a long-standing special interest and experience in end-of-life care and is the author of the recently released book, A Death Lived. Through her unique vantage points as both physician and wife, she chronicles the story of her husband Charles' final illness and death, focusing on the incredible power and need to have the difficult conversations about death. She believes that the time has come to expand the mindfulness paradigm to include mindful dying, and that it is in the process of having the difficult conversations that the space can be created to allow for mindful death experience. Martha brings an element of the spiritual to her work, both as an author and as a physician, and blends the medicine with the mystical, the science with the spiritual. She teaches meditation and offers workshops in both the U.S. and in Ireland. She can be found at fivestoneswellness.com and on social media. And she was married to Charles Beardsley for 30 years. Welcome, Martha. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. I, I, of course, really do enjoy conversations with other widows, and especially there's an aspect of what you and I are going to talk about that particularly um, called to me, which is uh, living with someone over a long period of time who is not well, and but is not actively dying and just how we process that um both as uh for your in your case as a medical person and and also as a spouse uh just how we figure out what's going on along the line that's a very familiar (laughs) experience to me it certainly is and it's it's a huge challenge isn't it um the, the day-to-day living with chronic illness, and I actually suspect it's the same for the person living with the, the chronic illness as the as the other half of the pair, um, it's hard to know because it's so up and down. Sometimes, sometimes you think everything is looking as if it's going to be fine and get better, and then the next shoe falls, right? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, and and also, uh, at least in the case of of my my wife, she outlived predictions by such a vast 
time span that even her medical uh, practitioners had no idea. And so getting any kind of guidance, guidance about it was kind of out of the question. It seems like you had a little more resource that way. People did seem to kind of have an idea of what might be happening. <laughs> Do you want right. to talk about the, the kind of the, the arc of his, his um, experience with illness and, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. what that was like for the two of you? So uh, Charles actually had, had dealt with illness for quite a long time, mostly cardiovascular illness. Ironically, he also was diagnosed and treated for a colon cancer in the middle of all that uh, with a couple of surgeries and chemotherapy. It wasn't the colon cancer in the end that that killed him. Um, I'm sure in its own way it contributed to his death, but it was his cardiovascular system really that um, is what what killed him in the end. And in his last year of life, we had six ICU hospitalizations, um, you know, and that's just a bad prognostic sign, as we say oh, in medicine. Yeah. And, and having had some personal experience in the ICU with uh, my wife and other people, such a wrenching and difficult experience. <laughs> well, it is. And it's, I mean, obviously it's, it's critical or you wouldn't be in there and it's exhausting and it's, it's exhilarating when things start to improve and exhausting and, yeah, it's just an experience that um, <laughs> is in its own unique category of experiences, right? Yeah. Absolutely true. And the thing with with your husband that stood out is that each each of those, you said six, right? Six events was treatable, but the overall pattern of it happening so many times in a short space of time was an indication of a broader picture. It absolutely was. And it's funny, you're, you're making me think of um, a conversation I had with Tom, our hospice doctor, who was really a, a dear, dear friend and just an incredible person. And I think it was probably about, oh, eight or so months into this, um, my own sort of up and down and, and looking at it and is he getting better? Is he not getting better? And I remember saying to Tom once in the throes of one of these hospitalizations, you know, nothing has changed. This is exactly what we did eight months ago or six months ago. And, and yet now you're telling me that, you know, he's not going to get better. What I, I don't understand the difference. Um, or maybe I didn't want to understand the difference. <laughs> For sure. And Tom just kindly looked at me. He said, it's, it, it's piling on. I mean, that was the difference. It was the sixth or the fifth right. episode. And the body, Charles's body, as well as his mind and his spirit, but his, it, it, it became too much. The tipping point, I think, was caused by too many episodes of the same thing. There's just a, a point at which it's just too much. The, any of the individual events would not have killed him. The culmination of six of them, it, it was just too much. Well, there's also, I, I had a sort of feeling of cart and horse. Um, was he having the episodes because his body was failing or was his body failing because he was having the episodes? <laughs> you know, I, exactly. I, uh, how would you ever know? 
Um, You don't. And I think that's one of the things that makes it hard to navigate when you're in the middle of that soup that you just, you're never sure. And you, and nobody can actually tell you. And as physicians, we can't actually tell someone how long they have to live or what it looks, you know, it's very, it's very hard to predict. And then things like your wife, it, it, they don't, they don't follow the rules. And then what do you do? <laughs> she was not a rule follower. I'll just say that out loud. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was telling you before we went on air that, uh, well, I'll start here, which I didn't say my constant prayer for myself is that I know when to stop doing stuff. Uh, I mean, that is just really, um, I've interviewed Katie Butler, who does a lot of work in slow medicine and, you know, making those determinations and lots of other guests too talk about that. But it really is something you have to feel, you have to know, right? And um, and then trust yourself about it. Um, but I was telling you before we went on air that she uh, eventually died uh with us knowing that it was coming because of a, a, bone, a calcification that was going on in her system that she couldn't live. But even then, there was a medication that slowed it slightly, which she kept wanting to take. And finally, uh, I, I, she couldn't make decisions anymore, and I stopped it because she didn't have a lot, you know, it was, yeah. it was over, but um, just making that type of decision when she couldn't um, was, I really had to trust myself. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and I've not ever regretted it, but you know, it's, it's not an easy thing for people to do. Well, it's not. And really that is, I would say the core thing that drove me to write this book is to really open the conversation about end-of-life care such that people understand the importance of having the conversations about what's important, what you might want or not want, long before the crisis ever happens. And I get pushback from people saying, well, if you're fine, you might not know what you want. And that's very true, but still, I think... There are themes, there are generalizations, and if you are the person being asked to make a decision for someone who can no longer speak or advocate for themselves, if you've had multiple conversations over the course of time and really know what that person wants, then I think it's easier to trust yourself and it takes a yes. tremendous burden off of it. It the really does. And interestingly, when she, uh, when she first got sick, we were not we were very close friends, best friends, but we were not together. And she mm-hmm. immediately asked me to be her power of attorney, and I was puzzled. You know, what's why me? She said, "You're the only person I know, including myself, who could um, decide to let me go." And that really helped. That really helped me. She had, she had entrusted that to me. Yes. And yes. I think that's an example of what you're talking about. I had no idea why she thought I could do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I only said yes because she asked me, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I yep. don't know what she was referring to. I had no experience. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> it, it was not a natural um, conclusion to come to on her part. Well, even but in my, it, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, even in my medical practice, you know, one of the things that is so difficult is when we would have somebody who who was dying and where those conversations had not been had. And then there's some somewhat estranged relative who all of a sudden wants everything done. Um, and that whole dynamic gets played out. Um, and it's not in, it's not necessarily in the best interest of the person who's doing the dying. And of course, uh, looking at my particular community, the LGBTQIA community, um, people do tend to come in who really are not, haven't had any relationship with the person because of estrangement. Right. And then there's the, the person that's lived with that person for 40 years uh, is completely disenfranchised. Yeah. Um, that's but that doesn't really mean, tough. yeah, but that doesn't mean that it's easy to have the conversations in advance. Let's circle back to the beginning because we're kind of, ahead of ourselves a little bit, I guess, but it's all part of the same thing. Um, because there's a part of your book that I that I would say um, really sets the stage for how things can be just another thing to deal with, everything's fine, but also indicate maybe something's changing. So let me just read that and, and have you comment a bit on it. Okay, great. Uh, There was snow on the ground that Wednesday morning as we left for the emergency room in the dark. By the time we returned home, the forsythia was in bloom. Charles had awakened with a numb, cool, and then painful right foot. Although I knew that medically this could have been any one of a number of problems, I was worried. With Charles' history of heart disease and peripheral vascular disease, I was worried that he might be experiencing an occlusion of blood flow to his leg similar to the process of a heart attack, when there is a blockage of blood flow to the heart. What it was specifically, though, I didn't know. What we also didn't know was that this was the start of the final chapter of his life. The other thing I didn't know in entering into this process of his final illness was that it would be a deeply sacred and profound experience, and ultimately a gift far beyond anything I could have imagined. Since I'd first met Charles when I was 16 years old, he had always been the teacher, first in school and then later in life. In the end, it turned out that he kept right on teaching, both through his act of dying and beyond. I deeply believe that one of Charles' purposes in this life was to teach as many of us as would listen how to die. And, you know, he had, I would say it's a... uh, in. It's such a common experience for cancer these days to be a longer experience where you know you're up against it and maybe maybe there's a slightly better chance that you have the conversations. Um, but heart disease is not necessarily a lethal disease in a predictable time frame, correct? That's right. Yeah. And so to me, that would make it a little more difficult to think, OK, now's the time we should have those conversations. You know, what I would love to see is that 
the conversations just become part of what we do and what we talk about in sort of our, our life organization um, things, tasks that we do. Most of us, somewhere along the line, you know, we'll go see the lawyer, have the will, people talk with financial people, you have your insurance. I think these conversations should be, at least initially, in that same sort of vein, so that we start to normalize the discussions around death. Because, as I like to say, it might be a newsflash, but every one of us is going to die. <laughs> Apparently not it, a newsflash. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I don't know if you've heard of the Conversation Project. Yes. But, but yes. their recommendation is uh, the first time the conversation happens is at 18, and it's renewed every year. Yeah. Um, because at that point, you are responsible for your own decisions. Before that, your parents are responsible, assuming you have parents, right? Right. And, and I, there's some wisdom in that. When my dad died, it was very sudden. He fell and his spinal cord severed, but he was, oh. still, he was still alive, right? And um, my mother said uh, he wouldn't, he told me he would not want to live this way. And she still had to go through with would any of us be mad at her, right? But we were right. all on board. We all knew my dad, <laughs> you know, we all knew what he wanted. And it does remove a whole layer of difficulty, doesn't it? It does. And the other thing is I, I always want to remember to honor people whose decisions are please do everything, because Absolutely. But then you would know that too, wouldn't exactly. you? Exactly. Yeah. But sometimes, I, uh, you know, it's not, I'm not universally advocating that everybody just, you know, give up the ghost, but it's, um, it's knowing what that person wants, what's meaningful to them, what's important to them. And when I said in that, in the book that Charles gave us such a huge gift, he did just that. He was so clear about what he wanted that, even though we were a blended family, which sometimes causes frictions and, and difficulties, we never had to have another conversation amongst ourselves about what we would or wouldn't do, which is really unusual. That's so unusual in my experience and so yeah. so blessed, really. Oh, it was because, wonderful. And the thing that stood out to me was, was also very familiar, which is that the fact that that was clear meant that the final period of his life was spent in a very personal environment. And it wasn't just that he was home. It was that you all were together and you there was no emergency, <laughs> right? Right, right. Um, there was no, no sense of having to... Um, decide, you know, oh, should we go this time? You know, it was just, it sounded, it felt peaceful, challenging, of course, but it peaceful and connected. It was extremely peaceful, yes. And it, having taken that issue off the table, if you will, and having such clarity, opened and created the space for us to really experience Charles's dying and death in a, in a mindful way. Mm, absolutely. Um, I don't want to no. shorten that conversation. So let's go to the break and then come back and talk about that more uh, okay. after a few minutes. All Listeners, right. 
Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, Instagram. Sign up for my email list. You know the works. And to find Martha Callahan, you can go to fivestoneswellness.com. Be back soon. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Martha Callahan about her memoir, A Death Lived. Before the break, Martha, we were talking about what having these preparatory conversations where you you got clear um, and he got clear and you got clear about him getting clear, um, what he would want and not want. And, and by the way, in a much more detailed way, than just, I don't want life-sustaining, you know, I don't want to be intubated or I don't want to code, because I think it's a bigger conversation than that, actually. You know, when do I want to stop? What would, what would indicate to me it's time to stop treatment, for instance, and all of that? Um, having an open place to talk about that seems to have contributed um, with you and your husband and, and the rest of your family and friends to a very beautiful um, experience of his dying. I agree with you. I mean, that, that's that's well said. Um, I think it was the having the conversations over and over and over again that then just facilitates the ease of bringing the things back up. Um, you know, I, we were fortunate in that we started having conversations with the hospice palliative care doctor a good six months before Charles died. And he didn't, Charles didn't opt for that right away. 
but we had conversations about where Tom thought Charles was in the in the process, in the sort of progression, um, what what might or might not happen, what he saw as as likely. Um, and, and what we could do about it and what the options were. Because one of the things that was so difficult, and I'm speaking as a physician, but we did not get that as easily from the medical team. Uh, because yes. there's always this something else offered. And I, and I am picking my words carefully because the other things offered up until a certain point had been exactly what we were asking for and life-saving and limb-saving and heroic treatment and, and fabulous treatment. So it's not criticism of the treatment. My frustration was how hard it was to have the conversations with the medical team and to start to move in that direction. Oh, you're making me vividly remember my mother-in-law's death. Um, hemorrhage led to a heart attack, you know, that that really dire thing and a set of, set of things after many things along the line, right? right. Similar, very similar. Piling and, on. <laughs> piling on, exactly. And um, we went out in the hall with the heart doctor at one point and I said does she have a chance for a meaningful recovery and he said I'm so relieved that you're bringing that up which means he was aware she didn't but somehow he was not going to say it and I think that does happen somehow um, that's not his department or I'm not sure. Maybe it's because healthcare is so divided into specialties. Maybe you know more wisdom about this than I do. But it was very notable to me that he didn't have a way to introduce the subject of you have choices and these are the consequences of those choices. And um, it's not likely that she will meaningfully recover, you know. We as the family were a very educated family, obviously. <laughs> I'm a member yeah. of that family. And um, we could do it. But what would have happened if, if that hadn't been true? Exactly. And I don't know the reasons why people don't feel empowered to have those conversations as physicians. Um, and I also don't know how they are currently being trained. I can tell you how I was trained although more years ago than I might like to admit, but <laughs> zero training, okay? No, nothing mm -hmm. about death and dying um, or how to help. Which is, which is insane in a way. I mean, it's completely <laughs> in insane because guess what? <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> and then do you, do you then live with a sense of failure when, of course, people die? Well, I'll tell you, one of Charles's physicians told me that and it broke my heart for him. But... It, it also is a little arrogant, isn't it? I well, mean, and, and also just I feel for uh, obviously most of the physicians I'm in very intimate contact with are in the end of life field, right? Mm -hmm. But I feel for physicians that aren't who have the choice between um, between offering intervention after intervention after intervention 
or failing, that those are the options they have. And that seems heartbreaking to me because those aren't the only options. No, they absolutely are not. And I think implicit in the struggle is the illusion that if you come clean, quote unquote, you're going to remove hope. And I think that's absolutely untrue. I think you can Mm -hmm. understand reality, statistics, quote unquote, which we all know may or may not apply. Look at, look at your wife, right? Right. Um, And hope. And I remember the conversation that actually it was the conversation that Charles had with us all as a family. Um, And he started out by saying, we all know I'm dying. I hope it's not soon. There's also a broader thing, and I, I want to share a little more from the book in a minute, but uh, I I always in my head when I hear hope uh, in situations such as this, I'm adding hope for what? Uh-huh. Um, because it's perfectly reasonable, reasonable to hope for a peaceful and beautiful death surrounded by your people. Uh-huh. It's perfectly reasonable to hope for a meaningful time as you're heading out of this life. Right. And so to me, it's false right from the start. I think people are talking about hope for cure when they well, say hope. And I, there's nothing wrong with hoping for a miracle. I mean, most no, of us nothing know it's not going to happen, but you can still hope. You can uh, hope for yes. a little more time or a gentle exit or whatever but you can do both as humans we have the capacity to hold both i think and i think it's unfair that's the the part that really bothers me is i think it's unfair not to be honest with somebody who who's in that process i mean they're relying on their team right they're sick they're probably in bed they're they're not figuring it out themselves although intuitively they know where they are and and I've seen experiences, I think we've all heard of them, where the person in the bed is saying, oh, don't tell my spouse that I'm dying. And the spouse is in the hall saying, oh, don't tell my spouse he's dying. It's like, what? You're, you're, the tragedy of that, in my mind, is such a wasted opportunity for a mindful death process and a lived death process. I so agree with you. And also just uh, who wouldn't resist the concept of of giving up hope right you know if it's a package deal you either have hope or you give it up <laughs> that's to me most of us would choose hope uh-huh. um so i like to broaden it okay there no matter what we have hope it's what we're hoping for may change but hope isn't changing right yeah. and understanding where you are to me, does not preclude the presence of hope. Honestly, I think it contributes. If, if, if my wife, for instance, had not been clear about the risks and benefits, she would have had a hard time choosing some things that ended up prolonging her life, right? If she had made any assumption about what the result would be. She tried a lot of things saying, well, it's worth a try, right? 
but it if it doesn't work i can i can stop mm-hmm. so in her case i think she might not have tried certain things uh if she without the information and the advantage of it it could turn out any number of ways yeah and the empowerment to know that you can choose to stop exactly exactly i want to share a little more of the book um which which is um, you'd had several conversations before this one I'm going to read, but I think it's clear to see how the previous conversations you and he had had and um, you and your children had had contributed to how this one went. And uh, I'd love to hear your comments after I, after I share this. All right. Uh, The morning after the party, Charles wanted to have a talk with all of us together. He wanted to be able to talk through his thoughts about end-of-life care, as we had done with Connor the previous month. He'd been thinking and writing about this for several weeks. So we gathered in the living room, Charles, myself, Sean, his son, and his daughter, Becca, Colin, and Connor, and Charles began to talk, as he put it, about my inevitable death. It even takes a while to get comfortable with that phrase, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. We, know, we know that my death is inevitable, he said. I just hope it's not soon. But I want you all to know what I do and don't want when that time comes. Again, he reiterated, I have no interest in being kept alive on machines, no heroics, no feeding tubes, no dialysis, no respirators. When I die, I will die. No prolonging it, please. Oh, and when I die, I want you to say I died. I am not going to pass. I'm going to die. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) You can donate my body to science, but I doubt they would accept it at this point. And I would like, if possible, to be at home. There was some nervous laughter and Connor broke the tension saying, you know, we could have you taxidermied and just keep you in in your chair. We all laughed and the conversation got easier after that. Perhaps not easier, but less hard. Perhaps because I had already experienced it with Connor, but the raw pain of it seemed less this time. I think we were all on some level prepared for it. And we were all aided by Charles' ability to be direct and honest and clear about what was important to him. It was quality of life, not quantity, that mattered to him. And there was absolute clarity, understanding, and agreement about that at the end of the conversation. Can you get used to or good at these conversations? Maybe so. And you know what I'd add, Martha, is if you have enough of those conversations, it does get funny. It does. Uh, uh. I really, I really resonated with the with the taxidermy thing. Like the first time you have that conversation, it is definitely not funny. No. But having had conversations for almost a decade with my wife about her impending death at a certain point, it really was hysterically funny. Well, you didn't die yet, you know, like, I don't know. Right. (laughs) And, and uh, I've actually found my humor during that period of time, to be honest, I didn't have one before that, but um, I have one now. So I think there is something about having the subject. We get comfortable with things we practice. We uh, sure do. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And, you know, the, that's what I got from that passage. The humor and it, it, it's a great relief um, and, you know, worked well for us. Maybe not for everybody, but, um, you know, I think Charles really liked the idea of being taxidermied. 
Sure. Uh, I think my wife would have too. That's why I especially laugh laugh yeah. at that passage. Yeah. You know, the idea of just like sticking around. Um, because for the person who's dying, they're letting go of everyone. Right. Uh, she used to talk to me about that, you know. Um, you're you're just you're just losing me. I'm losing all of you. And um so finding a way to feel connected in that and feel that we would still have her was right. very important to her. And that can't happen without the conversations. No, but, you know, again, what a gift. What a gift he gave us. Because for his children to be able to just talk openly and honestly and know what was coming the best that anybody was could predict but you know i i i don't think i'll ever stop saying that it was just an enormous gift and generous gift that he gave us and as a grief counselor i would say a, a tremendous gift to grievers in terms of what comes up in grief because having a reference point to the person where they t really tell you their expectation, what they want. Um, it, it removes self-doubt to a large degree often. It, yes. removes, um, it removes regret. I should have done this or that or the other. Um, and it means that at least in your and my case, we were able to have beautiful experiences of the most important person to us dying, which helps grief. Absolutely. And so I, I'm an advocate, a strong advocate. Let's go to a break, and, and when we come back, we'll, we'll keep talking about that. All so right. listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page to find me and to find Martha Callahan in her book. You can go to fivestoneswellness.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Martha Callahan, the author of A Death Lived. And, um, you know, we're talking about, it, it's, it's odd to some people to imagine that the, the experience of someone you deeply love 
uh, dying can be beautiful. Uh, I've known so many people, even in my personal life, who avoid being there when someone dies because they have the idea that it's going to just be a, a terrible experience. Um, and I suppose that can happen, of course. Um, but this idea that you have, and I, and I, and I do too, that uh, really dealing with death in advance changes the equation some uh, just seems so meaningful to me that uh, I, I know for sure I, I couldn't be prepared, but I could prepare. And it turned out when it happened, I was prepared. Right. I think that's, that's really well said. It's, it's not that it's not hard and it's not that it doesn't tear your heart out, but at least in our case, my case, I witnessed the absolute love of my life leaving this life, leaving his physical body and watching that experience made me realize also a spiritual dimension to it that I hadn't hadn't ex quite experienced like that before. So the total experience of the last couple of weeks of his life, the, the sort of active dying process was really beautiful. As you watch a, a person let go at the end of their life. And as, as we were saying a few minutes ago, let, let go of everybody around them um, and, and go through that process with the love and the support of, of the people there and the care given. And yeah, it was just, it was a profoundly beautiful and gut-wrenching experience at the same time. Yeah, there's a, there's a piece in your book I, I, I want to share because it intersects with some of these very I can't use another word, but mystical experiences that people mm -hmm. sometimes have in these places. Uh, and so I want to talk about that after I share this this little piece from your book. And so we shifted into yet another new routine of life centered around Charles in the bed in the back room, taking turns sitting with him and being with him. He was dying and yet life was going on all around him. We played music, ate and drank and talked and waited. I stayed with him, either in the bed with him or on the sofa next to him, staying there at night as well, night after night. I didn't want to leave. And we couldn't leave him alone. He needed help every time he tried to get up, and he tried to get up every couple of minutes, also familiar to me. We were a small group, Charles, Sean, Colin, and Connor and me, Rob, Susan, and later Sarah. We were with him round the clock. Other people came and went, but the core group of us never left for the two weeks that he was in the hospital bed dying. I've often marveled since how we managed to fit all of us in this small house and in that small room. The guys are all tall and under normal circumstances, I think it would have been stifling. But somehow the energy expanded the space and there was room for all of us and for the work that was being done. Sunday afternoon, Charles wanted to get up and with great effort walked through the kitchen to the bathroom. I was holding his arm for support as he walked. When he got to the bathroom door, he turned, looked at me and said, would you get me the map? 
I asked him to repeat himself, not sure if I'd understood him. He asked again, and then it hit me, and I knew what he was saying. I told him that I would. My spirit knew that this was code for telling me that he was, in fact, dying. My heart was breaking. My own personal version of that is that uh, my wife told me the mama train was coming, Uh and her her mother was, was not living. And she'd been extremely close to her mother. And I was like, we're getting closer. Yes. <laughs> you know, we're getting closer. Uh, I don't know if you know a book called Words at the, at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. No, I don't know that uh, book. It's a book uh, by a woman named Lisa Smart. I'm actually in the book. That's part of how I know about it. And I also interviewed her. And um, that, that, Metaphor of travel uh, is so, so, so common. Uh, Not universal, but so, so, so common. And it does make sense because those are our, those are our um, touchstones for going somewhere. Right. It it is incredibly common. And there is a book, uh, I wish I could remember right now, just just left my head but it talked about how common the travel metaphor is whether it's train schedules or packing a suitcase or in charles's case getting the map yes before Mm -hmm. we ever lived here a friend of ours lived here and uh she packed her luggage she died in the place i now live in but like probably 45 years ago now Mm -hmm. and um her metaphor was packing a suitcase uh, she she actually um, she was a very dynamic individual and she actually got everyone to help her pack an actual suitcase. Hmm. <laughs> so you know it's um, if you're if you're if you're attuned to it, um, I think that's so interesting because it means that for the person themselves, they are now going somewhere. Yes. There's some transition that's happened where they're not leaving somewhere, they are going somewhere. And that seems a real turning point for their experience as well as ours, yes? I would agree. And it's, again, that's, that's one of the experiences I was so grateful to be present for. And I don't just mean physically present, but because we were not mired in the conversations about, you know, what are, what are we going to do and, and all those peripheral issues, I was able to be mindfully present for that conversation, to understand it, to realize what was happening, and to just lean into the process and be with him even more. It's interesting because one thing that really stood out in your book um, which is, of course, 100% not true now, is that uh, there were aspects of this that, that really you as a physician, um, even one with a, a spouse who had faced illness, were, were not too clear on, for instance, the difference between palliative care and hospice. Uh, you know, what, what are, what's the point... I'll I'll just confess personally that if I'm ever diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, I'm going to demand a palliative care consult immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, I'll be right there with you. Uh, because I don't want to be getting to know somebody when I have to make the decisions. 
Right. Uh, right. Uh, I don't care if I don't see them that often, but, you know, I want that. But um, you kept wondering, you and he kept wondering, when is the moment where we should do that as if palliative care and hospice were the same thing? And that really stood out to me because, um, you know, you'd think doctors would know that, but they don't. And And so what chance do people who've never been in the medical system at all what chance do they have of of knowing what it all means and what the differences are and and all of that that really stood out to me it's a huge challenge and it's a huge challenge in many uh, communities the the availability of palliative care um, palliative care is really symptom relief so to some degree as physicians we all practice palliative care um, sure. in terms of symptom relief. But typically, if you have some condition that can't be cured and has some finite number of years of life expectancy, that's a okay time to start to think about palliative care. Hospice is usually, they think of, we're, we're told, you know, somebody has like, six months to live and and you can graduate from hospice people do it <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah yeah well we we were almost kicked out many times because <laughs> we had we had hospice for a couple of years <laughs> but she, lack of clarity about uh, but, what the options are i think is one of the big lost opportunities in the whole end of life care experience oh, absolutely. my friends who are in in hospice care so often and i don't Remember, I don't know the current statistics, but they're still not great. The average length of time that a patient or a family is involved with hospice care is very short. And I think there's a certain level of superstition involved, <laughs> as if um, coming to terms with the fact that someone thinks you are likely to die within six months means that you will. You know, if you if you sign on for that, it means you will, which, of course, it, it doesn't. No, in fact, the opposite's <laughs> been shown to be true, hasn't it? Yes, it, it definitely has. But there's there's also sort of, um, I don't know, the reason I say I would sign up right away if I had any kind of life-limiting illness, even if it was going to be a long uh, time span, is because I the palliative physicians that I know, and I know a lot of them, as you could imagine, they're very good at having at initiating quality of life conversations, um, wishes conversations. They're good at the conversation that you and I are talking about. Absolutely, they are, uh, and and that's that's something you're facing right away, right? As soon as someone gets a cancer diagnosis, for instance, they're thinking about, oh my God, I might die, but there's no container for the conversations. Yeah, talk about lost opportunities. I think so. I think so. So you agree with me on that? That maybe, uh, maybe that would be helpful. And I know that that your internist or even your oncologist doesn't really have that kind of time for one thing. No, I suppose not, but I, I hate that excuse. <laughs> I really hate that excuse. I, something tells me you take the time. <laughs> I certainly try to. Um, yeah. You know, these those are the most important conversations ever, right? But again, but that, I think it yeah. goes back to the whole thing of trying to normalize the conversation so that it's not this 
tremendous shock. The shock of getting a bad diagnosis is bad enough, but if people are a little bit more used to talking about, gee, when my time comes someday, you know, this, I think this and this is important to me, maybe it doesn't have to be the, the double shock. When I'm dealing with that with clients in my office, I'll often say, I know you're not facing your dying right now. And that's the perfect time to think about what you might want someday when you are. Right. That, that's the only way I've figured out to get around that. Um, if I talk about it, that means I'm dying thing. <laughs> you know? yeah. Because that's a real impediment, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Um, on another note, I got some training in Toronto in a um, program called Managing, uh, Managing Cancer and Living Meaningfully. And what they would do is uh, refer everyone who was suspending treatment to this program that had a lot to do with meaningfulness at the end of life. And the, the stats on it, they were doing a research project, were excellent. Uh, people had such a better experience because it opened up part of their, their gear was just opening up those conversations in a very fluid and natural way. And that's part of what I was there to get trained, trained in or further trained in, I guess. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic. I really, I really respect them a lot. And the, having the research to back it up, of course, they have the potential of possibly affecting the whole Canadian system of healthcare mm. because it's unified. So I, I highly recommend looking them up. Martha, I'm really happy to have been here today, and I know you have an upcoming. Um, you, your your book launch got put off, really. It got pandemic. Got pandemic, so you are going to have a virtual relaunch. And would you like to share the details? Yes. Uh, in this so, last minute before we thank go. Thank you. Yep, and it's been wonderful to talk with you. So I am doing a virtual relaunch in November. It's uh, November 11th, and the details. So it's going to be a Zoom. Um, a Zoom party uh, for the relaunch. So I will have that information up on our website soon. Again, that's fivestoneswellness.com. And I would love to have people join us. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for being here today. I have too. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Next week, I'll have Janine LeBlanc, editor and author of Healing Hearts, Shatterproof. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.